You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe and really excited to get back with you in this episode. I've got a special one for you today. We have talked about many, many things in our leadership journey on this show. And uh, I do want to shout out that uh, I'm very happy that we eclipsed the 100 episode mark uh, a couple of months ago. We're continuing to grow and expand, and we got a lot of exciting things happening over on our YouTube channel and all across social media. But today we're going to hit a topic that's really delicate for leaders. It's the idea of how to give and receive feedback. My guest is a gentleman named Glade Holman. Glade, welcome to the show. Thank you, Doug. I'm excited to share what I can. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Glade and I have had a lot of fun with a couple of preparatory episodes or, or meetings, I should say, that we've um, been involved in. But as is tradition on this show, Glade, give us a little bit of your background before we dive into the meat of the subject. Sure. Well, just, I mean, this might actually help us understand a little bit why that I'm so passionate around feedback and its power to help people grow um, and therefore my desire to help individuals receive it well. Um, uh, 25 years ago, I started my career out in a consulting position where we also did training around uh, strategy and leadership. And part of that training, we um, did managed simulations that were live over multiple days where, where organizations identified their top leaders um, to have, and this is like across about, I don't know, it's Fortune 500 companies, probably about 500 individuals and in all, all across the globe. And my assignment was to go in and observe them in these managed situations that were realistic business things that would be multi-day events. Um, and then also observe them in in situ and where they sit and then give them feedback for like, usually it was up towards of a day. So very early in my career, I got exposed to watching leaders in situations and then had the accountability to provide them with feedback that would help them. And these were leaders that were again, identified to be the very future of their organizations. You know, th that was the hope. And so that was, that's how I started 25 years ago with that type of stuff. And what I would, there was great um, early exposure, but now I can see where those people ended up, you know, um, 25 years later, um, did it pan out the way the organizations hoped it would? Did it pan out the way they hoped it would? And uh, I'll tell you, I've kept in contact with most of them and, and my own kind of anecdotal touch base. Several of them did. I mean, right to the top of, of C-suites and Fortune 500, even Fortune 100 companies. Um, and I started to ask myself, I wonder what it was that made the difference between those that made it all the way um, and those that didn't. Now, there were some on that path that were on that path, and they decided to kind of deviate from it themselves. They said, you know what? I think I can be more fulfilled in my career and contribute to the organization better by doing this rather than that plan they had for me. Um, so you had the group that made it. You had the group that said, that particular range is not for me. This is what I want my career to be. From their view, they made it. They got exactly what they wanted out of their career. And then there were those that were kind of removed from the path um, by against yeah. their will. And I asked kind of like, well, what, what, what was it that was different between those? You know, wh why did some do and some didn't? You know, was it, were those guys all great strategic thinkers? Were they very articulate? Did they have executive presence? Was there some secret sauce? And I'll tell you the one thing I actually landed on that made the difference when I could look at them, those that got what they wanted from their career, the, both those two groups that one, they hit the mark for the organization, one, they hit the mark for themselves, but maybe not for the organization, was that they had learned how to receive feedback 
graciously, I'll say, um, and then to act on it visibly. And, and that's become kind of a, a, a mantra for me uh, is to help individuals do that because if they receive feedback graciously, um, the feedback keeps coming. Uh, you know, as soon as I'm ingracious, the feedback stops coming. I know you need feedback to grow because I know you can't see your behavior through your own eyes. You can only see it through others. So they never lost sight of their behavior because they kept the eyes of others engaged by receiving it graciously, even when it was wrong, they received it graciously. Um, and then they acted on it visibly because then that let people know around them, I'm someone who can grow. I'm someone who you can take a risk on. I'm someone you can invest in because look, I did. And you see, I grew. Um, so you can put me in a new situation and I'm about growth. And those two things got them to where they wanted to go in their career. They never shut feedback down and they, they, with effort, acted on it visibly so that people sought, rather than hide their mistakes or hide bad feedback, right? They actually highlighted it so they could see themselves overcome it and that build a pattern for them to say, this is somebody you want to invest in the future. You can throw something new at them. So when you say, why a little bit of my background, that was way back in the start. And that's what Learning Bridge is all about at this point is trying to help people get the feedback they need to grow and putting them in the driver's seat rather than having feedback be done to you put you in the driver's seat and say feedback's done for you um, or done with you. Yeah. You know, that uh, that actually runs parallel with a dynamic that I've talked about a lot. And um, it has to do with in the uh, 2008 to 2010 timeframe, uh, of course, uh, you know, we had this huge economic crisis going on and unemployment was up in double digits. I created a nonprofit that was helping job seekers with their transition skills, uh, everything from, you know, sort of realigning their own mindset to resume writing, interviewing, all of that. And over time, I started tracking how we were doing as an organization. I'm an old banker, you know, metrics and numbers were a big thing for me. And after we had hit about the 1200 client mark, I did an analysis and I discovered we had a success rate of our clients landing new jobs, even in the bad economy, at a 66% rate. Well, in my book, that was a fail, and I was really not happy about that, and I wanted to figure out why. And I, I did some quick analysis, and in incredibly long story short, as I started going through the names of those in that bottom third that hadn't landed, I realized there was a common thread. Those were the guys that and gals that could not take feedback. They pushed back on our teaching. They argued with our instructors. They argued among themselves. They had rationale that was deeply embedded in why they were victims of the system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it made me realize in my own management career, I had actually experienced those same kind of metrics. Mm. And when I dug further, there, there was a split in the other two thirds. There was about a third that was just absolute rock stars. I mean, they yeah. just sucked in the teaching we were doing. Yeah. They ran with it. They had quick turnaround. And in the middle third, they participated, they embraced what we were doing, but they were slow adopters of it. They were just kind of slow and steady, but they got it done and they did in fact land new opportunities. But then there was that bottom third that was kicking and screaming the whole way and, and not accepting the feedback. So 
<laughs> well, I, I do know this. I, I look at an individual in one way, another way of characterizing it. It sounds like you know you don't have similar experiences in that, but I look at that when I'm first asked to work with someone, um, I kind of look for things that define their ceiling. Um, and I'll say, well, if if they don't have the ability to accept feedback graciously, I know that they've probably stopped in their growth. <laughs> they're they're going to go no higher. Um, they're going to be no more successful. Um, they have plateaued. There's there's nothing until that changes. They're they're stopped. You know, another rate limiter, by the way, also having to do with feedback that I'll see pretty quickly, is when a manager doesn't know how to give feedback to help people grow underneath them. And all they do is figure out how do I work harder to deliver better results. I haven't figured out how to create leaders underneath me. I'm I'm still doing the delivery up here myself. And until they learn the skill of building other people, and that always requires feedback and coaching, that's also a rate limiter. Like you may still deliver the results, but you're going to go no higher. Um, you're going to go no higher until you've done such a good job of developing those around you that you are no longer um, relevant. You know, sometimes they'll take that idea that, hey, if I went away and everything fell, fell apart, that's a sign of how important I am. To me, that's a sign that you're a poor leader, or a poor manager, and you didn't build people underneath you. And therefore, that means, again, you're rate limited on where you can go in your career. You're stuck there because you haven't figured out how to create a base of individuals underneath you. And that usually comes down to giving feedback that helps them grow, too. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing, and I'm also reflecting on our, some of our prep talk, uh, yeah. we've really got two tracks we need to talk about here. One is the leader owner that needs to be giving the feedback and that's a skill and a topic unto itself. But more importantly, and what you revealed that I think is highly critical for individuals is how do we receive feedback, whether it was issued from a good source or a bad source. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so let's quickly let's let's talk about the first one and the notion of some broad stroke definition of better ways to give feedback. Do you, do you have a framework or kind of a guide to, sure, to help sure. owners and leaders know that? Yep. Let me, let me, I often will start with the how to receive feedback well, because then I can take some of that knowledge and learning. I can spin it and use it to give okay. feedback too. So let me kind of start with some of the, the mindsets around this. You know, as I said before, you can't see your own behavior. You can only see it through the eyes of others. So you want to keep, who who doesn't want better sight? I do. That's why I have glasses, all right? So I'm going to try and keep as much feedback coming my way as I can, um, regardless if it was delivered by someone who was skilled or not, um, or even regardless if it was delivered by someone who was ill-intended or well-intended or not. Um, I'll talk about feedback that you can make all feedback generative. Um, you know, sometimes we say we like to classify it as, positive or negative or constructive or some other adjective. I want to take all those adjectives away and just replace it with one that says generative feedback. Um, and generative feedback, um, you can make any piece back, which means it generates more energy than it consumes, right? Um, it didn't take the wind out of you. It put the wind into your cell rather than taking the wind out. Now, I believe you can do that even with ill-intended, poorly delivered feedback, that you can still use it to, to push your cell forward um, in a positive way. And it's something that we've kind of termed feedback jujitsu um, is, a, is a kind of a tagline for us in that. Um, jujitsu, as you know, is like you know, ancient Chinese martial art. It was a response to the samurai warrior. 
Um, the Samurai Warrior, of course, had everything that you could imagine to be successful. Best training, best resources at the top of the social structure. Everything you want is was there. How could you go up against a samurai if you were a peasant and expect to come out on top? Well, the answer is you couldn't um, if you met them face to face. Interestingly, when you look at the translation of jujitsu, the jitsu part just means technique or skill. The ju part means supple. It means yielding. Um, it means flexible. It means bending. It means gentle. Um, so you could look at, well, wait, what is this thing called a martial art? That's this, this gentle, supple, bending, yielding, meant, you know, martial art. That's not what I associate with. Well, the central tenet is that you don't you don't hit the energy coming at you face on. You you take the energy that's coming and you grapple and you roll with it. You use whatever force is coming towards you and and don't force it head on. You grapple with it and come out in a position of of strength. So for me, that's a metaphor for feedback. Um, you don't hit it. And I'm not suggesting that feedback is a combat art. You know, it may feel that way sometimes, um, but that's not what I'm suggesting. It's but how do I use how do I use the energy of that feedback, regardless of how it's coming, to come out on top? And so I'll talk about like six feedback jujitsu moves. You know, that will help you take. Um, that you can learn and you can take anyone. And I could, you know, so we go through that process. But the first one is is really just to lock into the fact um, for us as individuals receiving feedback, recognize that it can be challenging, particularly when that feedback comes at you and it's a surprise. Um, because when that feedback comes for you and it's a surprise, your amygdala interprets that, you know, that little almond-shaped thing that sits above your brainstem says, that's a threat. That's my job. I'm supposed to look for things that's unfamiliar. If I see things that are unfamiliar, I'm going to get you ready to live tomorrow. And that means I'm going to take the blood and send it to your heart and your limbs. And I'm going to get you ready to fight or flight. And we've experienced that before. Unfortunately, the amygdala is not very, it's, it, it lives in the now. It doesn't know that that feedback's not a threat that's going to kill you now. It thinks it's a snake that's going to bite you and kill you right this moment. So it takes the blood, unfortunately, from your prefrontal cortex um, and puts it down into your heart and your lungs and limbs. And now you're receiving feedback at the same time you don't have any oxygen to actually think about it in your prefrontal cortex. And so that gets a whole bunch of bad behaviors. Um, so one of the first things I want to do is avoid that threat response from the feedback. And the way that I that I do that is it's the initial frame. And then I can share some other ones. But what I mean by the initial frame, most feedback you receive in a professional setting comes from a framework of measure and assess. And when something comes from the framework of a formal framework of measure and assess, that usually means I could lose something because um, I'm not going to measure up. And the amygdala is going to go bing, 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 bing. You're not going to, I better get you ready to fight your flight. Um, and it triggers that threat response simply because the feedback's coming from measure and assess. If you can translate measure and assess language into grow and improve <laughs> language, you do a really good job of probably getting the amygdala to calm down and keeping the prefrontal cortex. So the first thing I talk about is how do you live in the world of grow and improve rather than live in the world of measure and assess? And if you can take any feedback you get and move it to the world of grow and improve, you've got a chance of doing it. So I can take whatever feedback you give me, you may give it to me in measure and assess framework, I'm gonna change it to grow and improve language. Because if I use grow and improve language, it's a signal to my brain that this is about the future. Don't worry, it's not about a threat in the past. It's grow and improve, and we all want to do that. And that gets the brain in the right spot. So that's the first move. So let me, about let me take a pause right there or interject. What yeah. you just described is 99% of the annual assessment process at, at large corporations. Yep. It's And it is a surprise to most employees, the, the, the nature of the feedback. And it, that is one of the number one 
uh, deterrence or disenchanting, you know, aspects of, of that annual, traditional annual process. And sadly, that has evolved into more of a compliance exercise yeah. than a training and learning exercise. And and you're right. The the takeaway part, uh, you know, uh, it it uh, amazes me to this day that I still see companies that use force place rankings in those assessments. You got ten people on the team. Somebody's a ten. Somebody's a one. Ones go out the door. You know, a la Jack Welch. And yep. um, you know, it, it's a tremendously sad way to build a team. You know what's sad about it is the organization thinks they're doing the right thing and they think it's going to be productive. Um, the research is pretty clear now. It's not. In fact, Jack Welch stars kind of fallen around that when GE doesn't do that anymore. You know, um, it worked for a moment back then. But that idea when when that be, and it's like I was like, well, let's see if, if the idea was we're going to improve performance. I can tell you one thing that will, if you say, well, like, no, I don't want to improve. I want to, I want to actually suppress performance. Well, I can tell you what to do. If you want to suppress performance, do a, do a formalized annual review process where you specifically tie their objective to their compensation. Um, and you make the conversation be only about 20%, 13%, 14% on this objective. That adds up to year number, year a three, year a two, year a four. Um, I can show you the research that will say, if we do that, we're going to increase, we're going to decrease engagement, we're going to decrease productivity. And by the way, even those people that get evaluated high come out of the process less excited than when they went in. So it does an incredible job of discouraging people. Um, right. It does it very well. Um, and so if that's what you want to do, keep doing it. If you want to not do it, <laughs> if you want to encourage people, you might want to think about doing something different. But since I can't control that, um, like what the organization does, I still want to say if you're in, so if you're listening to this and you're going, yeah, I just went through my performance review, I felt that same way. I want to say you can still get information from that performance review that will help you, but you have to avoid the threat response being triggered for you. Um, I, I was just giving feedback to an individual senior, senior in the organization. It was 360 feedback and there were some tough messages that were a surprise and I could see this play out. He did not even know it. We were on video and I'm talking to him and we're going through the data and he's like, his cheeks are blown out. He's sucking the air in. Now I'm talking a very senior executive, and I knew he was not aware of this, but he it was just the reaction was was real and it was tangible to this feedback that he was getting. And I know right now that's a signal to me. So think about this in terms of giving feedback, right? We're kind of toggling to that. I saw that reaction in him. I knew instantly that pretty much what I'm going to say right now is not going to be very productive because his prefrontal cortex doesn't have the oxygen it needs to work with this. And so I've got to find a space to readdress the blood flow forward to the prefrontal cortex. And so he was doing some stuff like taking a deep breath. That helps. Um, I did some stuff to say, how can I shift him out of measure and assess and get him over to grow and improve, which is another one of my, um, another one of my feedback moves is to, it's not about last time, it's about next time. Um, because if you can talk about next time, that's the future. The future, what we as humans do really well um, that others don't do well in our in, in, on this globe is we're able to project into the future. Um, we're able to plan, and that has to do with the prefrontal cortex, and that's its primary role. So just by shifting the focus from last time, which is think of a performance review, it's all about last time, right? If I can shift the focus from last time to next time, 
um, I start to engage the prefrontal cortex and the blood can come back. So I had to shift him back out of, of this, take a deep breath, let's take a spot. Let's talk about next time and what you'd like to achieve. As soon as I shifted him to the future perspective, we basically, you know, I wanna make that be your home court, not the past. And as soon as I got him there, now he's got his fan base is with him. You know what I mean? And so he's got all that extra support by being in the, in the grow and improve future orientation rather than measure and assess past orientation. Um, so if you're giving feedback and you see someone that's triggered like that, recognize it's a biological function um, and that you can't, you can't fight it. You have to give them time to let the blood return. You might even take a break and say, well, let's get, a, get a drink of water, let's take a walk, or maybe let's go tomorrow, you know, and come back and have another conversation. Now, if you sense it and you're the one having the reaction because you're the one receiving the feedback, I'd also say, guess what? Your response is not going to be great to that feedback because your response is not going to come from your prefrontal cortex where your personality is, where who you're going to be literally beside yourself because yourself in the prefrontal cortex isn't going to have the blood it needs to be present. And so I really encourage people when you see you're triggered, um, do not react to the feedback at that moment in time because it's not you that's reacting, it's your amygdala. And you're probably gonna be sorry if you do. So the strategy is they'll say, but Glade, I'm in the moment, what do I do? How do I get it back? I said, well, it's biology. Unfortunately, there's physics involved, there's hormones involved. It takes time for the blood to get back there. And I, I give them the phrase and the phrase is, thank you for this feedback. You've given me a lot to think about. I really appreciate it. Um, I don't say if it's wrong, I don't say if it's right. I don't say anything. I just say, thank you for the feedback. You've really given me a lot to think about. I'd like to consider it very carefully. Um, can we have a conversation after the weekend? Uh, can I come back to you tomorrow with some thoughts on it? You've got to buy yourself to get the blood back in your brain um, on, on that one. But just understanding that dynamic and feedback is helpful. Well, you know, I, I want to just publicly go on record here. Uh, you have just given me something that's very powerful for the business that I'm in as an executive coach. You know, we frequently have to debrief on 360 assessments and uh, various personality assessments and things that are mandated by the company. And they're all great tools, but what you're describing, I, I can't tell you how many sessions I've, I've dialed into and my client is sitting there already hypertensive and, and yeah. anxiety, and you can just, it's just oozing out of them, you know, and they're, they're like clawing on waiting for this, this horrible news that's going to come from this. And uh, I'm, as I reflect now, I'm sure I have not very gracefully framed that up and set that up, but I, I love what you've shared here that, um, uh, and I'm, I'm going to start doing that in all of those sessions. I'm going to right on the front end, I'm going to say, hey, let's put this in perspective. <laughs> let's don't trigger that flight, fight or flight moment. This is not what we're doing. I, I need your <laughs> frontal cortex engaged yeah. here. <laughs> you know, the good news about that, though, Doug, is that just like the biological response to the fight flight response kind of inborn into us, something else that's also inborn into us is the desire to grow and improve. Um, when we have, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all that kind of stuff. But think about it. If, if even for those of us that are unhappy in our job, say I'm not growing or improving my job and it's beat me down as a human being, I probably find another way to grow outside. I pick up a hobby. I remodel my kitchen. I throw my energy into something else. It's natural for us to want to make things a little better tomorrow. We do that. Um, so I want to lean into that part 
of our core biology too, that's core psychology that defines who we are, and use that to counter that ill-timed um, false trigger that comes from the amygdala. And that's again why I lean into the next time, lean into the grow and improve, lean into let's talk about that. And, and just getting that shift helps that happen. Well, um, the so grow the whole grow and improve thing is definitely on the short list of probably top five reasons people cite in their exit interviews on why they're yep. leaving. I don't yep. feel like this company's given me an opportunity to grow. I see an opportunity over here and that's where I'm going. And, yep. you know, it's a stated phenomenon. Yeah, I'll often say that when I'm working with the company, I'll say, well, if they're, if they, they, particularly high potentials, um, you know, I like to look at um, a little Venn diagram with three circles in it. When I, when I sit down and talk with somebody about where they are and how they're doing, and I, I even could use this in a performance fire. Uh, and, and, and the first, the first circle is um, what do you do? Well, what are my key strengths? Um, the second circle is, um, uh, uh, you know, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? A little bit of aspiration. So what I do well, um, where I want to go, what I want to be great at, um, where I want to where, where I want to grow. And then the third cycle is now let's take the job that you're in today and lay it over those two. Um, and if I can lay it over those two and the job today, wow, I can look my what my job needs today. It's something I do well and something I want to do. That's great. That's competence, right? And that fits right in that overlap. You can imagine those three circles. That would be where all three circles overlap. I do it well. I want to do it. The job needs it. That's my area of competence, and I'm excited to have a job. If that, if, by the way, if that's not that, that doesn't have anything in it, I'm I'm pretty unhappy because we all want to be competent to some degree. Um, but that's that one. That other bucket is my job requires it. I don't do it well, and I want to do it. That's that grow zone. And if that's empty, um, if there isn't anything that falls into that one, I look elsewhere. Because if I can't grow my job, I'm going to switch. I'm going to switch my job. Yeah. If I don't have anything in the competence zone, I probably got to switch that circle too. And I'll often tell people, and you've done this too, I'm sure, Doug, where you find out. Like I look at the three overlaps of those circles, and I I see the current overlap of the your job today, and there just isn't enough that falls into that area of competence where it's I do it well and I want to do it, and the job needs it. I'm not doing them any favors by asking them to stick it out in there much longer. You've got to have a baseline of that. And sometimes the very best thing I can do is let's shift that job circle to a different one, yeah. um, you know, and and find one where we can get some competence in there and still some room to grow. And it'll be the happiest thing. You'll say, why didn't I shift that circle earlier? Yeah. Um, because I'm a lot happier. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's hard to do it when you're in the moment. Um, I do the I do the same methodology when I talk to my leadership development clients about their leadership, and yeah. so we talk a lot. And I'd use the same three circle idea. One circle is the leader they think they are and want to be. Yeah. And another circle is the leadership the company is indicating they expect you to be. And the third one is the leader your people need you to be. I like that a lot. And if you if you do that intersection of those, I always ask people, well, let's start. You know, on one end of the stream, you got a nice, happy stack of pancakes. Everything is good. You know, all the lights are green. But if there's any disconnect or imbalance in the way those line up, especially the one where the leader you want to be and what the company's asking you to be do not align, we're back to your thing. That job circle needs to move somewhere else. Yeah. And you'll be happier the sooner you do it. I mean, one thing I, I know that, I mean, 
you and I get to see this sometimes. So let's say I'm when I'm because we'll work with someone outside the organization and we may still work with them once they've left the organization. Um, sometimes when you're a manager or and you sit down and you're having a very difficult performance conversation because maybe the person is going to be exited and maybe they're exited because there just isn't enough falling within those two circles. Um, one of the things that, that can make you feel better is like you're not doing them in their favors by keeping someone in a job where they can't thrive. Um, that over time is just going to wear them psychologically out. You're not doing them a favor. Um, you want to do is everything you can to get them to a spot where there's enough overlap. Now, I can say you can always grow into it, but if you get that circle too soon, when you didn't have enough in that zone, you got to reshift and get one to where you can, and then eventually you can get back to that circle. But you're not doing anybody any favors by by letting them languish in a in a job where they just don't right now have enough in both of those areas. Yeah. If you don't have one in that in the zone of, of zone of performance and the zone of competence, the organization often will invite you to leave. If you don't have enough in that zone of growth, which is the new opportunities for what's coming up next for me, then the individual chooses to leave because you want both of those things to be filled up to some yeah, degree. Definitely. Well, Glade, I'll tell you what, it's time to take a quick commercial break uh, for uh, benefit of our sponsors. And uh, we're going to come back and we're going to continue this discussion. We will talk a lot more about this magical opportunity for feedback. Hang with us. We'll be right back. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness, too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. All right, everyone, we're back. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, and my guest today is Glade Holman. We've been talking about this dynamic that is inevitable in any business situation. Employee, employer, there's a need for feedback. And we, um, we, we talked a lot about the art of receiving feedback. I want to start the second half with a Quick question, Glade. Um, I, I was just on a call earlier today with a client who was struggling with a, a manager who has climbed the ladder, done pretty well, was thought of as a high potential, but now has actually demonstrated sort of a maxing out of capacity. And um, they have attempted to give feedback and encourage behavioral change to help move or continue the trajectory and the individuals just really not receiving it well or, or not embracing it. They're, they're not outwardly pushing back on it. They're just not demonstrating uh, the response and action. You, you had a phrase at the start, repeat that again, yeah. receive it. I and receive act. it graciously and then act on it visibly. So that part, yeah, they may have been receiving it, but not acting on it. That, yeah. yeah, that's that's the uh, symptomatic fail that's going on. So if I'm that more senior executive attempting to shape this person, what options do I have short of inviting them to uh, go find another job? Well, I, I like the way you set it up because I, I, I would narrow in on um, uh, 
a quick little frame for me is like, what type of feedback is he having difficulty taking on board um, in, in is one sense. And uh, there's kind of a scale of uh, feedback that's easiest to deal with and feedback that's most difficult to deal with. The feedback that's easiest to deal with is feedback that has to do with your knowledge. When you don't understand accounting, I can go get a book. I can read it. I, that's great. I can do it, right? I mean, I got a, I got an individual right now. She's like, you know, the head of a, a chief sales officer. I think she'd make a great CEO. Um, but probably before she could step into that spot, she would need to gain more knowledge around how the income statement works, the balance sheet works, and all that stuff and be able to talk. So there's a knowledge gap. Great. Take a course, read a book, whatever. That's easier feedback to deal with. A lot of times we get that feedback earlier. Really the next one is skill feedback. Um, you know, you don't you don't do my presentation, how I present or how I do something. That's like, okay, well, that one, you get a coach, you get people to watch you, and they give you technique and you get better on your technique. That one you can do. And a lot of the coaching that you and I do has to do with building maybe a certain skill in someone. How do you how do you think strategically? How do you do this? How do you do that? Those are skills that can be learned, usually facilitated with some knowledge and a coach that observes you and gives you guidance. The next bucket up is feedback around your beliefs. And I think this is where you're you're highlighting for me this individual. And we all have a set of beliefs and those beliefs we've picked up over the course of time. We think a good leader does X. We think a good direct report does Y. I think, and, and I pick those beliefs, I adopt them. I don't usually rationally go out and shop for them and say, which one's best? I've just accumulated them over the course of my career. And at some point in my career, they worked. But at maybe this point in my career, they may not work, but it's a belief. And when I get feedback on a belief, it's hard to get change until the individual sees that belief fail them. And it, usually that belief has to fail you two or three times before they're willing to give up on that belief. You know, so like I'll give you a quick example of a belief feedback, and maybe it comes back to this one. I worked with an individual whose company was just been bought by a, an organization in the UK. He was in the US and had a very American type style. And that was, hey, when we, we we get into the room, we talk things out, we make a decision, we battle there, and then we go away and, and make things happen. And so like, this is how budget conversations would be. We've all done our budget prep. We come in, we lay it down, we bargain in the room and we go out. Well, guess what? In the UK, there's kind of a phrase of like, you know, in the US, you kind of like, you know, we meet to discuss. Um, and in the UK, you kind of discuss and then meet. Um, and and it was like, so he's he's now going into the room in the UK and he gets in ready to kind of go to battle with his stuff. And he finds out that really the decisions have already been made because everybody went outside and lined up their folks behind them before it happened. And he said, that's politics. Um, I don't do office politics. I don't believe that's right. That's, you know, manipulating. Da, 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 da. And it's like, okay. Great. You you don't you don't you don't believe that's that you don't believe that's the right way to do it. That's politics. And it took about 18 months for him to realize that maybe it wasn't politics. It was another way of doing it. Because like if I talk to folks in the UK, they're like, why am I going to take my most important idea and expose it to one meeting? Why shouldn't I go around and find out where all my stakeholders are beforehand and line up everything before I get to that meeting? That was their view. That was their their belief was do it that way. His belief was battle it out. Um, and until he was willing to give up that belief, he was not going to be effective in his job. Now, that's not even a belief around what it looks like to be a good manager. You know, like, should I should I lean hard or not lean hard? But what I'll do if if he were if I were having a conversation with him, I'd work my way into a conversation around. We all pick up beliefs. 
we pick them up from books we read, from experience we've had, from some of the stuff that's worked in the past. But periodically, it behooves us to kind of take that bucket of beliefs that's, you know, there, dump it out on the table, sort through it a little bit, and then maybe now with some rationality and some thoughtfulness, decide which ones I want to pick back up and put back in the bucket. And maybe there'll be some that I'll need to actually add. Um, and I'll often kind of present it in a way to them. I'll say, it's kind of like a rent to own. I'm not going to ask you to buy this behavior right off the bat. Let's try before you buy. Let's rent it to own and see if it works. Because that's usually how behavior set in for us. We adopt them from someone else. They seem to work, so we stay with it. So I'll try and present them with a new behavior. I'll say, let's let's just take rent to own approach. I'm not asking you to buy it wholesale, like that, that individual. Let's just like, well, let's try syndicating your, your, your budget before you get to the meeting. Let's try having some conversation with the stakeholders and see that goes. Is it really manipulation? Um, or is it actually just a great way to do business? Let's try that out and see. It's so funny it's, you bring bring that up in my early career as a banker. We um, we still had a, a policy. We had loan committee. If you wanted to yeah. present a, you know, had a customer and needed a loan, depending on dollar amounts, uh, it went to varying degrees of committee and especially the big committee, so-called, you know, large dollar. Um, yeah. There was that syndicating campaigning for your deal before the committee ever met. And it was wise to intentionally go around all the members in one-on-one, -on -one, talk about your deal, explain, allow them to privately ask questions so that they didn't have to then invent publicly. It was a little bit of a safe facing, uh, facing face saving for the executives on the committee. And, uh, you know, smart, successful loan officers did that very well. Yeah. And and we called it the meeting before the meeting. Yep. And, um, um, you know, that's it's a principle that I have encouraged my other executive clients to follow when they are trying to be the champion of an initiative. And there is some sort of more formal team level uh, meeting that's going to happen to, you know, don't go bare your soul and all your cards you know, in that one meeting for the first time, you better go campaign. And, and yeah, you're right. I think a lot of people end up calling that office politics and, and their belief system tells them that's a bad deal to have to play the game of office politics is the way it's worded most times. But if it is in fact, the way that organization operates, what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, why, why should your belief system tell you that's a bad thing? Why don't you learn how to learn how to play the game? <laughs> it, it took him 18 months, you know, three different budget cycles before he finally said, okay, that not working for me anymore. I'm going to try and adopt a new one. Now that's, that's a maybe and there, there are some other beliefs and this may be where this individual is around the right way to manage people. You know, do I do it with heavy handed pressure on them or do I do it with light pressure or, or do I do it with inspired? Do I go into correct or do I go into inspire? Like there's all other sorts of beliefs there too that may need to be addressed. And, and that can be more challenging. Like another individual, a longer story, I won't share it all here, but um, about 13 months ago, you know, ethic complaints go up to, up to the board, hostile work environment about this individual. The person that placed those complaints they were going to exit the job because of working with this individual and on their way out um on their way out they actually 
penned an email that then distributed it to everybody in the entire organization that just undermined this person as the most, you know, demon-like manager you'd ever can kind of imagine and outlined all the stuff. Now, of course, you do the investigation. There's some truth, but not all the truth. But you're starting from a behavioral set that was that didn't work for that individual and had a really massive train and then was propagated across the organization. You're like, can this person survive or not? Um, and what will it take? I was asked to work with her because they saw some uh, real, real potential with her. And I'm looking at this. We're starting from here. You know, <laughs> what do we do? Is the best thing for her to go to a new job where she gets a clean slate? How are we going to undo this narrative about she's a lousy manager? She treats people like trash or she's condescending and all these like phrases that are just toxic. You know, how do we do with that? And so we had a lot of conversations around we've got to rewrite the narrative that's out there on you right now. And we're only going to rewrite that narrative by people seeing you do something different. It's not about you, but what they see. And guess what? Confirmation bias comes into this. And so since they've already been cued to see these types of behaviors that are bad, they're going to scan the environment until they see it. Oh, bing, there we go. Yep. And it happens once in a blue moon, but it's now you, you know, because of that. So I said, we've got a lot of work to do to recast that, but we got to talk about some beliefs that you have because she was treating people pretty much like a resource not like people. Um, she wasn't doing it because she thought they were bad people. She just was so focused on her objective and on making things happen that she just ran through people rather than ran with them. Um, and so we did take that bucket and we did shift it out and we did sort around and kind of said, well, you know, what's the narrative you'd like to have with your direct reports? Well, I'd like to have them. I, it would be great if they said, she understands me. She has my back. Um, she helps me come up with solutions. Okay, well, if that's the narrative, what's the narrative today? She doesn't understand me. You know, she doesn't care. And all she cares about is hitting her marks. And I said, well, what are they going to do to, to change that narrative? What do they have to see different from you? Um, well, I thought that's the way I get results is by holding them accountable. It's like, well, that's one of those beliefs. Let's look at it. Uh, is it working for us or not? Okay, let's set it off to the side. Let's try a different one and see if that one works for us. And so it was slowly over time, we just focused on each set of stakeholders and how she could demonstrate different behaviors so they could rewrite that narrative. But she had to change her belief around what it meant to be a good, competent manager and how to hold people to account. Um, and uh, I just got on you know, a call with her yesterday. Uh, she was just promoted to VP from you know 11 months later. And I was like, that's probably one of the biggest turnarounds I've seen in this organization. VP is the next level is SVP and there's no more. So, I mean, this was a, a real career milestone for her yeah. but because she was willing to reassess some of her beliefs and then adopt new ones and do it over that and, and do it visibly because boy, she had to do it visibly. Um, I was in the promotion board committee hearing the conversations and they'd say, well, remember back when? And then someone would say, yeah, but I think she's changed. Remember back when? Yep, but I've seen her make an adjustment. And all of a sudden, they saw this kind of pattern of she can receive feedback and act on it. Okay, let's put her into that spot. Not only let's put her into that spot, let's think about a broader responsibility for her because we know she's coachable. Um, and now we can trust putting her in someplace new because anybody that goes into someplace new needs coaching. And those that don't take it fell. So now we can put her into a new spot and she can keep growing. To me, it's a great example of what it means to one, not take the feedback too personal, even when it's delivered personal, recognize it's just a narrative that lives in people's mind. Two, you can rewrite the narrative, not by changing who you are, but just by changing what they see.
And that might mean you change a belief, right? That could in the long term change who you are, but you change a belief out and you let them see something different. And, and then you get a narrative that says, she cares about me. She listens to me. She understands what I'm doing. She has my back. She's on my side. I can be successful with her. Let's get that narrative in your kids yeah. that are working for you. How do we make that work? I want to highlight a theme that I've heard several times now in this, and I, I, I happen to totally agree with it. The This idea that as a leader, your behavior is what sets the definition of your reputation, your perception, etc. You can have all of the most noble, wonderful beliefs and values in your heart and mind when you step into the game, but if you have behaviors that tell other stories, it doesn't matter what you think, feel, or believe. Your people around you that you're trying to influence influences one of the biggest indicators of effective leadership. Yeah, for sure. If those you're trying to influence have a different perception that is not productive, not uh, uh, helpful, you've got some work to do to turn that around. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think um, for me, you, you highlighted that one that that notion of. I got to pay attention to what works for the people that work for me, right? Um, and and they, I got to listen to what they're experiencing. As human beings, um, our, our our brain likes to remember stories, you know, not facts. Um, you remember the story, not the facts. And so, what happens is when when our brain gets presented with three facts, in order to remember it, it'll create a story around those three facts. Um, and of course, any story created out three facts is going to be uh, a supposition, bring a whole lot of assumptions in there that may not be there. Right. So you say this, right. this individual that have these beliefs and these cores and these orientations, well, they're not experiencing the person on the other end. They don't see all those. They saw the last time they interacted with you and the time that you interacted with that person. And when you presented, and then they made the decision, you're someone that doesn't care about people. That may not, may not be true, but it's the, it's the, it's the connection that the brain did on those three data points. Now what happens that then sets in and then they look for confirming data to confirm that, and that becomes the narrative for that person. So I always tell someone, when we're looking at feedback, we're not learning about you, you're gonna discover the narrative that someone's written. And there are two things that are true about every piece of feedback you're ever gonna receive, and it's true about every piece. The first thing that's true about every piece of feedback is it's gonna be biased, right? Absolutely biased because people bring their beliefs to the feedback setting. I tell you what I think good leadership is by the feedback I give you. So it's biased. They have their own perspective. The next thing, it's incomplete. They don't see the whole picture. Now, most of us will say, oh, I'll use those two things to dismiss feedback all the time. I'll say Bill's biased and he doesn't get the whole picture. Therefore, I, I don't listen to his feedback. Well, guess what? You can say that about every single piece of feedback you're going to ever receive. Um, and so get off the idea that because it's biased and it's incomplete, you don't listen to it. What that means is, oh, it's biased and incomplete. It's still telling me the narrative they have in their head. And it's so it's not about me. It's about that narrative. Um, and I can, the power to change that narrative rests with me. Um, I'm going to put new things into that narrative. So like with her, and, and this is really hard, when you have a negative component in the narrative, to remove a negative is much harder um, because people may see your behavior change. They see it change once. The narrative's still there. They see it change twice. 
the narrative's still there. They see it change three times, the narrative starts to shift. They see it slip back for you slipped you know, just a little bit. Okay, narrative's back solid. Um, and so it takes yeah. it takes time. And I'll tell her, like I said, look, you've got to go in and dress this head on. You've got to draw their, this is the act visibly part. So if you want to change that narrative, you go in and you say, I know in the past, it's felt like I have been X, Y, and Z. I want to change that. Going forward, I want to be different. So I have to point them to the behavior I want them to look at to write the new story. Because if I just, you know, like for instance, a fellow that I had a, this guy, he just always inter, he just always responded inappropriately, too much aggression, everything was all caps, everything was a slap. We got the behavior under control. It went from 80% of the time to 10% of the time. That wasn't enough to change the behavior because the absence of the behavior doesn't rewrite the narrative. And I said, I said to him, I said, until you actually tell the people that you're trying to change that narrative and that you might slip up occasionally, they're not going to let it change. Because I guarantee you in the next six months, you're going to do one thing that's consistent with the old narrative and that will let it live. You yeah. got to draw their attention to it, you're going to do it. But it's about that. It's about what's in their head, not what's in you. Yeah. Well, Glade, I think this has been amazing. And thank you so much for your insights and tips and helps on this. Um, I We, we are going to, unfortunately, have to wrap this up. But uh, tell people the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more. Sure. I, I'm, I'm definitely, like I said, I'm passionate about getting people the feedback they need to grow and thrive. Because um, I know they need it. And I think I wish more people had access to it. And so everything I do is to try to tell how can we do that. And we do that through Learning Bridge, uh, which is our, our company's name and pretty easy to remember, learningbridge.com. You can also look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to address anybody's question. I'm happy to engage in conversations around it. Um, on LinkedIn, I'm pretty, um, there's, there aren't too many Glade Holmans out there. That's one of the benefits. So I, um, if you can remember Learning Bridge and Glade Holman, um, there, you'll probably find me. And, and I always welcome the opportunity to talk about feedback and how you can take control of the feedback you receive to get what you want out of your career. That's phenomenal. Well, thank you again for sharing with us. And um, this, this, is, this has been awesome. I really like it. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, folks, we are going to wrap this up. And again, I want to remind you, if you're listening on your favorite streaming service, we do have a video edition of this over on uh, YouTube, a channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Please hop over there, join us, uh, leave a comment, leave a subscription. We've actually added a merchandise store. You can get your own uh, copy of a, a T-shirt with the Leadership Powered by Common Sense logo on it. If you uh, are now a uh, champion of the theme and uh, a believer in the tribe, so um, hop over there, check it out. But for now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and I hope you have a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.